Welcome to this special edition of The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode because, well, we pretty much all need it because what is in this new Brexit deal? I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll be here talking today about what is in that Brexit deal, the new one that's on the table since Thursday morning. We knew at the start of this week that we were in for a big one, but I'm not sure any of us predicted that that would happen on Thursday morning, especially with all the deadlines that had already been set out by the EU. Today I'm joined in studio by our deputy editor and executive producer, Christine Bohan, uh, the journal.e reporter Dominic McGrath, and on the line from Brussels is Grania A, our Brexit reporter. Uh, Christine, it was really hard to predict this week. You were right in the thick of it in the newsroom. How were your plans uh, for dealing with the newsroom during this Brexit week? Uh, I would say adrenaline filled. Um, it's it's like what you're saying there at the start, that it, it's so hard to plan for it because you don't know where it's going. You don't know what's going to happen. So we were prepping for something where we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So on the one hand, we're planning, you know, live blogs, we were planning explainers and things that we could do to, to get the story across to readers. But on the other hand, you don't know what the story that you're planning for is going to be. And at the same time, I think the important thing here is that, you know, whether there is was going to be a deal or not, that's only one small part of the story. And you can't lose sight of that when you're in a newsroom and because we've been here before we've had a deal before so the next step is you know does it pass Westminster but really the big story is what is the UK going to look like after Brexit so we're trying on the one hand to do our daily coverage and you know yesterday th- Thursday was one of the I would say one of the wildest days we've had in the newsroom trying to follow everything in the DUP and the twists and turns but at the same time you're thinking okay this is exciting and it's, it's good to cover and it's it's fun in a way if you can say that about, uh, about a, a news story that is so dramatic but at the same time, you know, once you take the drama away, what is the UK going to look like after this? So trying to f- figure that out and trying to get that across to readers was, um, was it was a tough day. It was, I don't know how many people got a lot of sleep last night. I think we were all a little bit kind of adrenaline fueled and yeah, cause hyper. For, for me, a, a normal Brexit week, it can either feel like it's on slow motion or on fast forward, depending on who's in control of the remote. Like, you know, on, on Wednesday night, it looked like um, there was going to be a deal. We were all following like, tweets from, from Brussels. Grania was there. Like, it looks like there's going to be a deal. Thursday morning, we wake up. The DUP has said, no, there's not going to be a deal. But then a couple of hours later, there's a deal. And we're saying it's done, but it's very far from done because now we have this super Saturday on Saturday where the House of Commons are all going to sit and... We haven't figured out who's going to vote for this deal. And I think that's part of the reason why people can find it hard to follow this as a news story. When for people in a newsroom or for people following the coverage very closely, it feels like every second is more drama and more excitement. And oh my God, the DUP have put out a statement and now they've retracted and they've walked it back. And it's very dramatic. And that's, there's something very compelling and exciting about that. But at the same time, these are all tiny, tiny steps in part of a much bigger story. So, and I think that's, you know, for people who are following the story closely, that is a tough thing to pay attention to. Grania, what's the atmosphere in Brussels like? Uh, it's interesting because obviously it is very dramatic from an Irish point of view and a British point of view. But then the other EU leaders, remember, a lot of them don't have... Uh, the same stake or the same kind of skin in the game as we do. So they just want to get on with it. And um, a lot of the issues that uh, they're going to be talking about in the second day of the summit have nothing to do with Brexit. And it's something that um, they get quite tired about being asked, you know, from British press about Brexit. They're like, there are other things going on, much bigger problems on a world scale than this. So they really do want to move on. At the same time, there was kind of like a jovial atmosphere when people like Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president, and Donald Tusk, the European Council president, 
were asked, you know, how do you feel about the deal? Are you going to get more sleep now? Are you relieved that this is finally over? So there is a sense of fatigue uh, definitely with the whole Brexit process. Yeah, so let's get into it. The deal has been struck between the UK and the EU. What is in it? So basically uh, a lot, because I think there's a lot of confusion around this because it's a second deal, but really it's like the second draft of the same deal. A lot of the things that were in the first one haven't been touched. I don't want to put a percentage on it because that's a bit confusing. But the two big differences are the Irish backstop and the level playing field provision and the, in the political declaration. So the, the Northern or the, the Irish backstop is part of the protocol. And the protocol was in the withdrawal agreement, kind of aimed to keep things in on the island of Ireland as as kind of stable as possible. So in that protocol was the uh, common travel area, the all island electricity market and the Irish backstop. And that's what's changed, that Irish backstop provision. So basically... It wasn't really clear at the start what had happened, but as Tisha confirmed himself later when he was asked directly, it has been removed from the withdrawal agreement in favour of an alternative arrangement. That alternative arrangement is confusing, to put it in a word, but basically it means that Northern Ireland will stay somewhat aligned to the EU's customs union, but it is in the UK's custom territory. So it's basically got a foot in both, for, for want of a better, better term. Um, this is a bit of an experiment, really, um, because, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of trade experts talking about it and they don't really know if it will work or how it will, will turn out. But basically it is a best case kind of solution um, the EU said, you know, there were rumours around going that Angela Merkel said the, the Northern Ireland had to stay in the EU's customs union. And obviously the UK wanted to preserve the union and also strike up free trade deals, which being in the EU's customs union, they wouldn't be allowed to do. So it was squaring that circle. And this is their kind of suggestion or the agreed deal in order to try and do that. Um, other things in this Irish backstop, there will be a regulatory border along the Irish Sea, which the DUP won't be happy about and then there's also the consent mechanism this is another concession or um, compromise from the Irish government they said repeatedly over and over again uh, Leo Varadkar tarnished to Simon Coveney your minister Helen McEntee they said a time limited backstop is not a backstop uh, they don't have a backstop anymore but there is a time limit on its replacement so you'd wonder how happy they are about that. It basically means that Northern Ireland, the Northern Irish Assembly will get a vote on whatever proposals are put before them after four years. And if they agree to that, depending on what kind of majority there is in, in Stormont, they could extend those by four years or by eight years. And then there will be a vote thereafter. And there's a lot of concerns about that creating a, a, an economically unstable region in Northern Ireland, because, you know, what company will want to invest in a region where the rules aren't, and the, you know, the, the, the name of the game effectively isn't certain. Um, the other, very quickly, the other change that there is, um, is in the political direct declaration. So there was a legally binding phrase in the withdrawal agreement that said, 
the EU and the UK will be on a level playing field. So workers' rights would be the same. Environmental standards would be the same. Rules on state aid would be the same. So they can't give each other's companies a boost following Brexit to kind of become more competitive with one another or lower labour standards to become more competitive in the market that they're both trying to compete in. That has been taken out of the withdrawal agreement and has been put into the political declaration in a non-legal kind of setting. So it's open to uh, being kind of forsaken during the trade talks that you'd assume we will go on to if the deal goes through the House of Commons. Dominic, on those areas for Northern Ireland, what does it practically mean to be in the customs territory of the UK, but aligned to the customs union of the EU? So really it means that Northern Ireland is sort of in this, I guess, halfway house position. But probably if you're going to measure it probably slightly closer to the EU, it'll be under the jurisdiction also of ECJ and some of these sort of arbitration um, mechanisms. Um, For people who are actually in Northern Ireland, it will probably mean a lot of confusion. Um, Now, members of the business community in Northern Ireland have said today and yesterday as well that they can live with it. It's an acceptable deal, they can work around it, but, you know, it's very, very far from perfect. Um, Politically, you know, Grania talked about it, it means just a lot of instability. Um, If there's one thing you can rely on in Northern Ireland, it is unpredictability, especially since the St Andrew's Agreement um, a few years ago. Um, And it's important to recognise that, really, we don't know where Northern Irish politics is going to go um, in the next well, next month, let alone a decade. And it's really important to think about who's actually going to make up an assembly if it ever gets back up and running again or who's making up the executive. Um, so if if there is a simple majority who support keeping these arrangements, North Ireland will be relatively stable. It will keep going and sticking to the rules as agreed under this deal. But if there's a unionist majority in the next few years, which is a very sort of reasonable proposition, there's an easy, easy set of steps to envision that you could get to that um, that situation, then everything's up in the air once again and we're back to the negotiating table once again. So Dominic, if there is a unionist majority, so the unions can take that simple majority in whatever of the next 10, 20 years, there would be a situation that they might end those arrangements. The Northern Ireland comes out of being aligned to the EU customs union and therefore there would have to be a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Yeah, so it's quite a reasonable proposition, quite a reasonable, um, very foreseeable set of events. Um the thing is, it's actually kind of reliant on the Ulster Unionist Party, actually, in some respects. Now, at the moment, they're not doing very well at all. Um, but if they got a few more uh, votes, the DUP continues to do quite well in Northern Ireland, there would be very clearly uh, a Unionist majority who would want to have a closer relationship with the UK. And we're back where we started again at the negotiating table. Um, now, the EU has said they will do all they can to protect the single market. Now, they've said that before. Um, and we ended up with the current deal, which is something of a compromise, something of a movement from the EU and the Irish side. But again, it's all quite unpredictable. And we very much could end up back here around the same table, um, both in Brussels and this own studio as well, discussing the exact same problem in a few years' time. There was some suggestion before we saw the text of the deal that... Uh, if there what if there did look to ha- be a unionist simple majority possible, that the other side, Sinn Féin, could just take down the assembly again to ensure that there was no vote. When we've seen the text of the deal, is that something that could happen? 
It's really hard to know. Um, it is quite um, untested now. One former DUP official I spoke to, he did predict that there wouldn't be a unionist majority in the coming years. Now, he was quite, I guess, quietly confident that's the way North Ireland politics was going, but that's still up for speculation. Um, and yes, um, one party, if it was Sinn Féin, could decide to collapse the Assembly, collapse the executive. We've seen that repeatedly in the course of Northern Irish politics. That probably would be a measure of last resort. But again, it's theoretically possible that if it did look like um, there was going to be a unionist majority, you could see parties seeking out those extreme measures. And again, Northern Ireland politics is as polarised as ever. Um, there's really no prospect of the Assembly getting back up and running. And the simple fact is that these new these new um, rules coming from the deal really invest huge amounts of responsibility in Northern Ireland institutions that have prov- proved not entirely robust to political pressure in recent years. To add to that, um, it's interesting because people have said, what if there's not a Stormont Assembly in a couple of years? Um, and they would actually, there's actually a provision that uh, the assembly members will be gathered for a special plenary on those arrangements. So even you might have the DUP and Sinn Féin not being able to form an assembly, but still having a vote on what happens to the rest of Northern Ireland, which seems quite unfair. Am I correct in this timeline? So the earliest the assembly can vote on keeping or getting rid of this current arrangement is 2024, because that's four years after the entrance and transition period. And then if they do vote to get rid of the arrangements, there will have to be a cooling off period. So it'll actually be 2026 is the earliest that these arrangements can end. Do I have that right, Grania? Yeah, the, the protocol or this kind of one foot in, one foot out customs arrangement applies for the four years after the transition period. So that will either be 2024, but because we can actually extend the transition period from 2020 to 2022, the latest that could be extended till is December 2026. Um, the Assembly will get a vote two months before this date to kind of give give a, a bit of breathing room to prepare for whatever um, rules they want to implement. And the kind of the consent mechanism is is complicated as well, of course. Um, the majority that is needed is a simple majority for it to apply for four years. But if they get cross-community support, so that's, I think, that's a 60% in total and a 40% for both unionists and nationalists, then it will be extended to eight years, which obviously gives Northern Ireland a lot more certainty. So the more united nationalists and unionists are, the better it is for Northern Ireland. There's a lovely symbolism to that. But um, as we've seen with the DUP, uh, they seem very split on what is best for Northern Ireland. And one of the things that's kind of perhaps frustrating about that mechanism that Grani just described is it it goes back to that old binary of nationalists and unionist blocs, which some have been trying to take Stormont away from and take the assembly away from. Um, because you've got this rise of the alliance, you've got you know people who are kind of sick of the old divide, and people have criticised the petition of concern, for instance, as being very much something that institutionalises that block binary image of Northern Ireland. So it's somewhat reductive to have um, this view of this sort of um, cross-community majority because, you know, in a decade's time, maybe you'd hope Northern Ireland has moved on from that. But again, this seems to keep Northern Ireland... Keep the institutions there. Speaking of uh, the the, the institutions and and the place of the DUP within them, um, the DUP are against this deal. What are their specific issues with it? Yes, so the DUP 
are in quite a curious position. And you just sort of go back a week, which feels like a long time. But the DUP made a huge, huge concession to Boris Johnson uh, last week. They said that they would agree to a regulatory border in the Irish Sea, which they famously said would be a blood red line for them. So this was a huge moment and it sort of encouraged a lot of people to think that Boris had secured, I guess, a, a mastercraft in diplomacy and negotiation and was you know, really pushing towards um, a deal. Now, what happened uh, yesterday morning was that the DUP came out even before we knew there was actually a deal and said, look, no, we can't back uh, the current plans. And that was really based primarily on the new consent mechanisms that Grania uh, described. Basically, the fact that they didn't have a veto anymore meant that I think they kind of stepped back and said, well, if you, we don't have a veto, we can't support a border in the Irish Sea. So, What did they want a veto on? They basically wanted a veto um, on on the customs arrangements. They wanted to make sure that when the time came for Stormont to vote, they'd be able to say, um, no, we're going to stop uh, any any move towards extending these arrangements and we'll go back to a closer relationship with the UK. And I think as, well, as long as that was guaranteed from Boris Johnson, um, they were quite happy to support a regulatory border uh, in the Irish Sea. Once that disappeared, um, as Sammy Wilson was talking about today, they kind of dropped back in that, I think, because they would say that they felt betrayed by Boris Johnson. We know who's against the deal. Do we know who's for the deal other than Boris Johnson, Ireland and the EU? It's actually hard to know who else. We're kind of in this speculation stage where everyone's trying to count everyone's votes. Um, now, some Tory rebels who were expelled from the Conservative Party, you'll remember by Boris Johnson for voting against him, will probably back the deal. Um, the important thing, though, is that these rebels are rebels for many different causes. Um, some wanted a second referendum. Some simply were terrified of no deal and hard Brexiteers taking over the Tory party. So they're not going to vote as a bloc. And that's what makes it very difficult to decide who's for and who's against. Um, we've also got some Labour MPs who could possibly um, back the deal. They're from uh, leave seats. They're worried about uh, any upcoming election. But the difficult thing with that is we don't really know, um, at least at the time of recording, how Labour is going to approach the vote, um, what the whipping system will be. And really, it's important to remember, this is probably the most consequential vote these Labour MPs will ever cast. They do have the potential to get Boris Johnson's deal over the line and give him a great platform for any election and really change the course of the UK. So it's really hard to know if these Labour MPs will get behind it. And that means even determining whether his vote will pass tomorrow is really really difficult. And that goes back to the very start, Christine, when we talk about planning in the newsroom or anybody planning and politics is just about numbers and we actually don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, do we? We kind of don't. I mean, the, the things that we do know are that um, the debate is going to start at half nine in the House of Commons tomorrow and at the moment the, the vote is indicated to take place at half two. But we checked in with the House of Commons today about this, about the half two time and the spokesperson who got back to us said that the debate will go on for as long as it can go on, <laughs> which is kind of a Samuel Beckett approach to time there. But it means that if you're going to put money on it, I would say you'd be safe to say that it won't happen at half two because we're going to see a lot of amendments added to this um, to this uh, to this deal. But beyond that, 
I mean, I would not put money on what time it is going to take place at because we have no clue. And it also means it's very difficult to plan a newsroom. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll be OK. It's also, as you said, difficult for Boris Johnson to plan. Like, will he go in and lose another vote in the House of Commons, which obviously would be a disaster. For I mean, him. it would be it would be not a great track record to have. At the moment, The a couple of papers in Britain have been trying to ring around MPs and get an idea of where we're at um, for, you know, whether or not this will pass or not. The most recent prediction that I saw from the Financial Times had a, a gap of three votes. So it said that there are, I think it was 318 MPs they had as voting uh, in favour of the deal, 321 against. So, you know, so it's very, very tight. And they think that that means that if there's just a gap of three, it's probably possible for Boris Johnson to persuade three MPs to move over and to vote in favour. He can sweeten those so it's, it's, it's Yeah, I think it's possible. And one of the things is, you know, while tomorrow is hugely important, this is also a motion t- to get MPs to support the deal. We still have to get this into legislation. It has to go through the Commons. It has to go through the House of Lords. And that's quite a lot to do in a very, very short period of time. So it's going to be very dramatic if Brexit is going to happen by the 31st of October. If Boris gets Brexit done by the 31st of October. Thank you so much, Dominic. Grania, I hope you enjoy your non-Brexit day in Brussels. And thanks very much, Christine. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. This episode was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bohan, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. A big thanks to Grania from Brussels and Dominic for coming into studio as well. If you're enjoying these episodes, particularly these special bonus ones, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you and catch you next time.